as written down by John. So listen now for God's word to you and to me. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I believe it's on page 93 of the New Testament in your Red Pew Bible. So listen now for God's word to you and to me. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the waters, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some water out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, even though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone, everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. Translation, they saved the Franzia until the very end. But you, you have kept the good wine, the good stuff, until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. On this Martin Luther King weekend, given all the acrimony that is coloring our political discourse, and the anxiety that's out there that's brewing, that's being fueled by concerns over the economy and the environment, and a generally bleak and depressing news cycle. I'm wondering this weekend what we can do as people who claim to believe in a God who loves us and who is with us. I'm wondering what we can do to help create this beloved community that Reverend King preached so much about and a community he believed was realistic and an achievable goal. What can we do to get from here to there, from the valley to the mountaintop, from the brokenness to wholeness, from the discord to unity, from the injustice to justice for all? I'm asking because it seems that now more than ever we need a miracle (laughs) to set things right. People are often surprised, maybe you were surprised, to learn that the first miracle of Jesus as recorded by John involves three interesting things. His mother, wine, and a wedding party. Now, I've officiated probably close to 100 weddings in the last 18 years. And at the rehearsal for every single one, usually standing right here at Fairmount, I tell the family, I tell the couple, hey, something's going to go wrong at your wedding. Something will not go as according to plan. I've seen rings fall in grates. I've had grooms pass out. I've had best men pass out. I've had mother and mothers go at it. I've seen it all. But not once 
has the unwelcome surprise been a shortage of alcohol? Can you imagine (laughs) the complete and utter horror? Now, in first century Palestine, given the climate, the lack of clean drinking water, the large number of guests who would have come to a wedding, and the sustained duration of a wedding feast that could have lasted even a week, the lack of wine at this wedding was more than just an annoyance. It's a very unwelcome surprise. Running out of wine is a serious problem. The inability to provide guests with what they need was a failure of hospitality, and you cannot underestimate how important hospitality was in first century Palestine. This act of running out of wine, out of drinks, would have brought shame upon the family who hosted this wedding. We may hear this story and wonder why the family of the bride and groom failed to provide enough wine. Surely someone told them to buy extra But it was also an ancient custom for guests to bring wedding gifts in the form of food and drink to share the burden of providing for such a large group for such a long period of time. Which means the family's lack of wine may indicate a lack of community support, a lack of community buy-in, in addition to the lack of resources this family may have had. Whatever the case, as the wine cellars begin to empty, I love this. Jesus is beginning his ministry among the people, and who's the first person to speak in his ministry? His mom. I love that image. He's trying to break free, and there's mom. The wine cellar is empty, and she steps in. And like women have for centuries, I've seen this at weddings, Mary has the wherewithal to foresee a coming catastrophe. A catastrophe that will bring shame upon this family at a time when they should be receiving great, great honor. And so in an attempt to avoid a difficult situation, Mary finds her son at the wedding and gives him the news that the wine's about to run out. And Mary's willingness to share this concern with Jesus provides us with the first lesson in this story. It is good for us to bring our concerns for our community and our world to Jesus. It is good to see the problems out there, name them, and tell him about them. Instead of keeping our anxieties and worries to ourselves, we need to name our worries and concerns about the future and share them, especially the concerns we have for others. Share them with God. This is not easy. Naming something means giving it some sense of power. It gets into your life once you give it words. But Mary teaches us there is power in naming the concerns we have for others. Unfortunately, as is often the case, Jesus seems physically incapable of giving a straight answer, of of talking plainly. Instead of immediately addressing the concern, he could have snapped his fingers, been at Circle K, snapped his fingers, and been back with boxes and boxes and bottles of wine. But instead, as he often does, he pauses and takes this opportunity to make a larger point. What concern is that to you and me, woman? He says, my hour has not yet come. This statement's an illusion to another wedding, another feast, another celebration that's on the horizon that'll take place after his death and his resurrection. 
His response, in my opinion, is odd, bordering on rude. But Mary's response to Jesus gives us the second lesson of this miracle, a lesson that I think is essential as we consider how we can make the world a better place. Instead of pestering Jesus or being offended by his obtuse response or wanting more details regarding the plan, Mary simply says to the servants who are standing nearby, do whatever he tells you. Instead of pursuing a particular outcome, a particular solution to the problem, Mary instead exhibits deep and abiding trust. There's a term out there called attachment. Perhaps you've heard about attachment. We all struggle with attachment, with this idea that we should be able to have and hold and control. Why are you smiling? Have, no, you all, we all struggle with it. We have and hold and control people. Think about your children, your parents, your friends. We think we can control situations that we can actually work hard enough to create a desired outcome, or we think we can control the outcome. If we do X, Y, and Z, then this will happen. We expend so much energy every day trying to control the uncontrollable, manage the unmanageable, and exert our will, our, our wants, our hopes, onto other people. I mean, I'm speaking about you, not me, of course. No, of course. I struggle all the time. I, over, I overestimate my importance every morning by 5.30 a.m. And instead of this anxiety and this fear and this longing to have control, to manage the outcomes, instead of it leading us to God, to Jesus, to our spiritual places, our concerns cause us to overfunction, typically, to do more than we need to do, to try more than we need to try, to exert more control than we have, as we seek to manage people in situations that are not ours to manage or control. So I'm wondering, looking at Mary's cue, what would it be like for us to try something different this coming year? What if instead of exerting so much energy and will in an attempt to shape the future, what if we tried surrendering and letting go? In his I Have a Dream speech in August of 1963, Dr. King spoke of the fierce urgency of the present moment, the fierce urgency of now, and his words still have weight today. Now is the time, he writes, to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all God's children. It would be a fatal, it would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of this moment. So when I say surrender, I don't mean to overlook the urgency of this moment. Personally, I think we're in a pretty urgent time. I'm not fatalistic or depressed about the way things are, but I'm honest too. They are not as they should be. Some things that we value are truly broken and need fixing. There is an urgency, an importance to this moment we find ourselves in, and an urgency we cannot overlook. But when Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you, She's not ignoring the problems. She's not burying her head in the sand. 
When she tells the servants to do whatever Jesus tells you, she is embracing, I think, the fierce urgency of the now by fully trusting in God's good and gracious will. Her faith in that moment was put into action. Her belief that God is good was put to the test. Surrendering our will does not mean we disconnect from reality or treat or from the real troubles of life. Surrendering our need for a particular result or outcome is not giving up or giving in or capitulating or being naive or being irresponsible. Mary teaches us we surrender our desire for a particular outcome so we can open ourselves up to an outcome, a result that is beyond our imagining. Surrender is a courageous and powerful act because it puts, us, puts into action the belief that we really are beloved sons and daughters of God, which allows God to be a father and a mother to us all. Surrender is trusting that God knows what is best, not only for you, but for others as well. I think so much of what's happening in our political and cultural landscape is fear and pride leading to solutions and outcomes that benefit some at the expense of others. And that is not the nature of solutions, the nature of the solutions that the God we worship and serve seeks. God seeks to find solutions that draw everyone in. Like many of you, um, my relationship with my parents has been a mixed bag. I'll speak for myself. My relationship with my parents has been a mixed bag. I'm sure yours is perfect. (laughs) I'm blessed. My parents love me. I know this without a doubt. They've always been there for me. They've taken me to games, seen my concerts, been there for me in times of need, but I've always struggled with the ways they choose to express their love and support for me. It doesn't always line up for the things that I want or even maybe need. And I used to fight them about this all the time. I would try to change the way they acted, the way they communicated, the way they loved me. It was exhausting for everyone. About 10 years ago, I went to hear a speaker. I forget the name of the speaker, but talking about surrender and letting go. And I got in the car. I said, I'm done. I am done trying to change my parents. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to take all that energy and control I've been trying to exert on the, to them, and I'm going to put it aside, and I'm just going to call them three times a week when I'm in my car on my way to and from work. Ten-minute conversations, I can do that. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. I can handle this, and I'm going to see what happens. And so I, I tried. At first, our conversations were very awkward. We weren't jumping into those familiar arguments that we'd grown accustomed to our greatest hits, as my one friend likes to say. You know those conversations where you can see it coming and you start singing the refrain and then it ends the way it always ends and you're always surprised. Why did it end that way? I've heard that song before. But after a while, once we got past the initial awkwardness of me saying, hey, how you doing? And then stopping there, (laughs) we started to talk and get along. We fought less. And we even started to enjoy one another. My parents still don't love me the way I want. But it's okay. They love me. And that's pretty cool. My sister is eternally thankful because she stopped hearing all the arguments they had about me when I got off the phone. 
Our children are thankful too because they now, they now see me interacting with my parents in a way that's full of love and joy and peace. Everyone is benefiting from my choice 10 years ago to just let go of my need for a particular outcome. How different would your life look if you let go of what you want? If you stopped expecting your loved ones to act a certain way? If you no longer became attached to a specific outcome or a result? If you stop living with the illusion, or is it a delusion, that you have control over anyone or anything? What would your life be like, your community be like, your family be like, your workspace be like, if you took Mary's lead, trusted in God's presence, and surrendered to what is? Many philosophers like to make the argument that low expectations are the key to happiness. So if you think the Browns are going to win three games every year and they win seven, you're happy, right? And there's some truth to that. Low expectations do lead to happiness. And I tend to agree with that hypothesis, but I think Jesus would twist that teaching just a little bit and expand it a little bit too. I think what he is teaching us all throughout the Gospels is the key to happiness and to shalom and to peace is trading in your expectations for his. He is always ready to perform a miracle in our communities. It's just not the miracle we expect or often want. I've told this story before, but I love it so much. The story of Babette's Feast. Babette, a gifted Parisian chef, is banished from her native Paris in a time of political turmoil. She washes up ashore in a small Danish fishing village where she discovers a fractured and divided religious community. Go figure. Never heard of such a thing. The once tight-knit band of believers had been bickering with each other for quite a while, nursing old grudges and exchanging petty insults. Much to the dismay of the two spinster sisters who head up the community. Sounds a bit like Washington, too. The sisters hire Babette to be their cook, but they ask her to prepare only the blandest foods, which is what they are used to eating. One day, Babette learns she has won the lottery in Paris. She has a new lease on life, an opportunity to start anew afresh, but first, she offers to cook a true feast for her new community. The villagers are treated to rare delicacies, the best wine, and some of the most delicious gourmet food in the world. It is truly an extravagant meal. Although these these religious folks have no idea the true value of Babette's gift to them, during the meal, their community begins to be restored. Past insults are forgiven, grudges are dropped, and when the evening is finished, they join hands and sing the doxology under the stars, praising God for the extravagant gifts of creation and salvation. It's only after the meal that the sisters discover the truly extravagant nature of Babette's feast. She had spent all the money she had won to make that meal, not just a portion of the cash as they had thought. 
In doing so, she gave up the opportunity. She let go of the opportunity. She surrendered the opportunity to restore her life. She could not return to Paris and become a chef in one of the world's best restaurants in spite of her great talent. She had, quote, wasted everything on this small, fractious community. And her so-called waste brought new life to everyone who experienced her extravagant feast. There's some debate over who performs the miracle in today's story, the miracle of turning water into wine. Some say it was Jesus, of course it was Jesus. He blinked his eyes twice like bewitched and it became wine. But a close look at the story, I think, reveals it might have been the servants, the ones who were willing to do what Jesus asked them to do, the ones who poured the water into the jugs, the ones who took the water to the steward, I wonder if it was those who were responsible for the water becoming wine. And if it is them, if they were the ones, it seems to indicate to me that the miracles we are looking for, the changes we are longing to come to pass, the shifts in culture we crave, can be found in our willingness to be the community Christ calls us to be. If you want to make a difference, if you want your kids to live in a better world than you grew up in, if you want a nation where all are welcome, if you want to live in a community where there is enough food and wine and resources for everyone, try using the template offered to us in this first miracle of Jesus. Do as Mary did. Bring your concerns about your community to Jesus. Bring them up. Let go of any desired outcome regarding those concerns. And then allow yourself to be drawn into the very community for which you are concerned. Don't Watch from a distance. Get up right close. So when the steward brings out the really good wine, when the miracle happens, you are there to enjoy it with everyone else. Salvation is not and has never been an individual affair. Salvation has always been and will always be experienced in the context of a beloved community, a community not defined by our limited capacity but rather by God's unlimited generosity, not towards you and me, but towards us. Everyone else serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine, the boxed wine, after the guests have become drunk. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Amen.